Welcome to the Food Intelligence Podcast brought to you by TasteWise. My name is Ron, and today we're talking to Alon Chen, CEO and co-founder of TasteWise, about how technology and AI is impacting the food and beverage industry. Let's get to it. Alon, thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to, uh, to spend some time with me. Um, I really wanted to get your perspective about uh, a few of the things that we've been talking to um, some of our uh, customers as well as some of the guests that, uh, that we've had on, um, on the podcast. Uh, something that comes up a lot is um, how do we actually measure the market and why is it uh, important to start thinking about a bit of a paradigm shift in the way that, uh, that companies are measuring the market today? So I want to kind of kick us off with your thoughts about that, and then let's just see where it goes. Yeah, so I, as you know, um, the market has been uh, using a lot of uh, outdated methodologies to try and understand what is actually happening uh, on people's uh, plate. What are people eating, drinking? How, do they make, how are they making their choices? Uh, what's driving them? You know, it used to be that um, taste was the, the primary and the only consideration, and today, uh, we know that the taste is uh, a prerequisite for any uh, food and beverage, but second to that is health. And uh, and uh, what we need to understand is uh, what is actually driving people, for instance, for veganism? Is it their consideration for um, for animal welfare, or is it a general well-being for themselves? And and actually, the the latter is uh, uh, five times higher than uh, animal welfare. So really understanding what is driving consumers must happen uh, in a much more uh, thorough way. So uh, basically we're no, what we know today for sure is that the reasons, the motivations behind what consumers are choosing to eat and drink um, are changing. The reasons are changing on a day-to-day basis. It used to be pretty stagnated. So the same 150 uh, food, and, uh, food and beverage product items on the shelf were you know, the, the most commonly items uh, purchased. And they were pretty consistent over the years. But what's happening today, uh, and even before COVID, is that we're seeing so much change in the kind of products consumers are choosing. And if the if consumers are, are shifting their perspectives uh, uh, so often and so frequently, we must find a new way to, uh, to follow... Um, to follow them very closely, to be able to come up with the right strategies, with the right products, with the right marketing campaigns, and with the right sales motions to the to the market. So you had a really interesting point about veganism um, that uses an example. Um, so if I know that, for example, veganism in a certain region or maybe globally um, is currently trending and it is something that I should uh, be aware of, um, why does it matter for me to understand the driver for it, like if it's health or if it's animal cruelty, like why do I need to dig into to those drivers? Let's take a very uh, simple example. You have a new plant-based burger. What kind of uh, value proposition or feature will you put forward? The fact that it was actually uh, not cruel uh, for animals or the fact that it's actually healthier for you because it, it has less antibiotics and, and, uh, and less... Uh, you know, hazardous uh, materials or, or ingredients in it. So really, the, the, the most important thing when you're uh, creating a new product or when you're marketing your product is to understand the deep consumer motivation of your target audience. 
Um, and this is when it, it is super critical in times where there's so much change. Um, just think about you know, yourself as a consumer during COVID-19. Everything you did uh, from that day on changed pretty much on a monthly basis based on the regulation, based on the lockdown, based on the availability of, of good and beverage, food and beverage uh, on your food delivery app, on your e-retail. So really, if you can't capture the consumer needs uh, and, and the, the trends uh, on, a, on a weekly and a monthly basis, you're pretty much, you know, uh, running uh, blindfolded and you're making the wrong decisions that end up being loss of revenue, uh, losing to your competition, and most importantly, not having, you know, uh, not having met your consumer needs. And, and this is, you know, for any consumer product company, uh, your product is everything and consumers uh, are even you know, consumer desire or need to uh, to have your product on in their pantries or or uh, in the fridge is actually critical for your uh, survival. Yeah. So if uh, if you rely on stagnant data sources um, such as um, surveys or focus groups or or even census data, um, then you're essentially making decisions based on uh, things that are uh, no longer relevant. Do you find that that behaves differently between retail and restaurants? Because those seem to be like the two biggest parts of the market, but the ecosystems around how we measure the success of products in both of them seem to be wildly different. It's a great question. So there's definitely a, a lot more agility when it comes to working with food service, given that the fact that food service is a lot more flexible and agile than retail. The sales cycles in retails are longer. The production cycles, you know, for retail-related uh, products are longer. And so is, you know, your entire sales and marketing motions. Whereas at fo in food service, everything is much more fast-paced. Um, you know that 50% uh, um, of the restaurants made changes to their menu in the past two weeks alone. So using uh, market analytics like TasteWise, that is the only solution out there that can help you monitor uh, most of the restaurants in the U.S. on a weekly basis really helps you get to your uh, target uh, market faster and to see the movements in the industry. Are your competitors uh, selling better than you? If you don't know that, how can you reprioritize your sales activities in Salesforce on the ground to actually address that? Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting because uh, recently we had a conversation about how restaurants and the food service side of the business um, in general is uh, kind of like the world's largest innovation platform because it's not just like the food trends and beverage trends, but it's also where new business models uh, emerge. And it's uh, also where the, the trends themselves often um, are incepted. Um, so you spend a lot of your time talking to um, executives from the food and beverage industry, from either our customers, or you recently recorded um, a panel for a conference. Um, are you noticing any sort of themes uh, in the executives that you feel are making the right decisions about their, their brands? Or on the maybe flip side of that, do you feel like there's something that they're missing? I think that there's, um, you know, there's uh, both, right? Um, so most of the corporations we're talking to and also mid-tier and small companies understand the value of technology for their 
for the optimization of their uh, businesses, everything from uh, cost reduction to revenue uplifting, right? And, and growing your market share. They understand that the, that the amount of uh, digital data that is available out there uh, can really help them optimize their, uh, th- their businesses. Uh, everything from, you know, getting much faster to the market. Freshly is a company we're working with and they're using our platform to come up with new dishes on a weekly basis. And the dishes they're, they're launching together with uh, the taster's data end up, you know, making a much, you know, much higher returns in a much shorter times with less product iterations post launch. So this is one example for how they're really behaving with the right mindsets. Um, I, I think that overall, it, it's clear that uh, when you have a large food brand, right, your uh, production processes and, and cycles are very long. So by the time you're making a decision and the time you see the product on the shelf, it can take up to 12, 18 months in some cases. So it is clear that... Um, the time to market is critical. You need to be there first and you need to find um, uh, new data sources. I think that a lot of organizations are uh, constantly trying to optimize the data they, they have and to you know, analyze the data they have. But what they don't consider is, is what is it out there that they don't know of. And this is where we come into play. So if you are analyzing your sales data you know, inside and out, Keep doing that. It's great, but it really does not help you understand what are the movements in the market? How are uh, your competitors' uh, tactic, uh, tactics help them grow? And what is it out there that is upcoming that, uh, that you don't know of? So there is a big risk for organizations uh, uh, to keep you know, um, evaluating uh, and analyzing their internal data sets alone. And this is where Tasters comes into play. And, and, the, and the other thing is, uh, when it comes to food and beverage, unlike other uh, business uh, domains, uh, food and, and beverage and the data that uh, comes together with it is a very unstructured world. It means that you can see an image, but you need to make sense of it. You can, you can see a, uh, you know, a recipe, but you need to understand uh, it thoroughly. And, and if you don't have the specific AI and, and text analytics, let's take it for example, that truly understands that a burger is a cheeseburger, is a patty, uh, is a slider, then you're missing, you know, you're missing uh, um, the main point and your data is leading you to the wrong direction. So absolutely, there's, you know, great examples from, uh, from all spectrum, but there's also um, uh, big uh, challenges that the industry needs to be uh, fully aware of. Yeah, um, I really like the example. Um, just uh, following up with what you just said about uh, about the AI models, where um, there are kind of two examples that I really like. Where one is that if you're not looking at all of the digital data sources out there holistically, then you're really missing out on um, the way that consumers behave. And a really great example of this is gut health, Um, because the only people really talking about gut health on Instagram, for example, will be people trying to sell you some sort of supplement. Um, People, of course, some people do, but people generally don't talk about their gut health issues on Instagram and on Twitter, uh, for example, uh, it, it's mostly brands just promoting their own stuff. Um, but people are interacting on Pinterest, for example, or other recipe websites or on blogs with recipes for uh, things that alleviate gut health 
concerns, right? They alleviate gut health pains. Um, and if you were only looking, for example, at generic social listening, and you were only looking at one piece of the pie, you're really going to miss out on uh, on a certain trend. Um, and it and the reason and if someone is looking for a specific recipe, just like you said, you need to be able to understand um, how that recipe interacts. Where does it meet the consumer? Because if someone is looking for um, a recipe to help to help um, alleviate gut health pains. It still needs to be very specific because we found that uh, recipes that call out specific diets and specific consumer needs can have anywhere between four up to 15 times more engagement and uh, and traffic. Um, we find this where we see, you know, websites like food.com that have um, millions of, um, of recipes about uh, oats, for example, that involve oats and various different things. And then we found, um, uh, I don't remember the name of the website, I believe it was Simply Delicious, that have far fewer recipes, but almost twice the amount of traffic and engagement on those recipes, which you know is going to tie back to consumption frequency, uh, simply because they did a better job at calling out very specifically the consumer needs, why would I want to make this oat-based um, dish, right? Uh, I Even for me during COVID, when I walked into the kitchen and I Googled um, healthy and quick lunch for kids, right? Even those two keywords of, of healthy and easy uh, were incredibly, incredibly important to the audience that I belong to, which are parents to, yeah, like working professionals who are parents to, to young children. So segmentation also becomes uh, incredibly, incredibly important. Um, absolutely. So again, the, the, you know, AI is often used as a buzzword. Uh, but then you really need to drill down to the specific um, business solution. What is it helping you solve? Um, you know, very early on when we started TasteWise, we were thinking about the challenge of trying to predict what should be the next flavor of of your uh, yogurt line or for your hummus. And uh, we found that we found that the information is out there. And, and we spoke to executives that were telling us exactly where to look. They were telling us that they know that all the answers are uh, somewhere in social media. They were telling us that they know that consumers use online to solve their needs and they Google a lot of stuff and they end up in, in recipes. And they know that uh, the restaurants uh, are the fastest entity to innovate. So they're basically an innovation platform uh, doing like, hundreds of thousands of innovation tests and pilots every single week. And if they could only monitor that in a thorough way, and that's what we basically built, right? We built a system that only looks where we know that there are signals and signs and evidences and data that once put together with a lot of technology can actually help you answer every single question you need about your food and beverage uh, uh, development, marketing, and sales. Mm -hmm. um, I want us to talk a little bit about the structure of the traditional CPG. Like if we're talking about, because we have a, a lot of different people from uh, all over the food industry uh, listening, and I want us to, to put some order into the chaos of like, if we take, you know, your generic, not naming specific names, um, big CPG, um, Today it works almost in kind of like a um, almost like a waterfall approach. Uh, not necessarily all the different bits of pieces, but some of the problems that we're seeing is that there are silos between the different pieces of uh, of the chain. 
Um, I think you, you've gotten a chance that's pretty unique to get some visibility into how many of these different companies work. Um, so could you walk me through kind of the cycle that you're seeing in how a traditional CPG works from inception, you know, like as far back as you can go, even from like the farmer all the way to, uh, to, to retail and, and restaurants? Yes. So there is an interesting perspective, you know, when we started uh, to really get to know the industry uh, four years ago, there was a lot of uh, um, movement towards innovation departments. So you have a big conglomerate that's making, like, say, soda, and there's a lot of innovation teams. And what we see over time is that the innovation teams are, you know, dissolving, they're disappearing. And it's a good thing because these organizations realized and learned that innovation cannot be held exclusively within one team. It actually needs to be everyone's responsibility. And so if you have an innovation team, then you're basically discouraging, you know, other departments and other teams to actually innovate. So I think this is the biggest thing I, I can say about CPGs that is going to be, you know, generic and applicable to all. There's less and less innovation teams. Obviously, there's open innovation departments that help the different teams get access to the different innovations, which is actually a blast because uh, no organization needs a structured way to, you know, exchange and, and interact with the outside uh, world and, and come up with the right business terms. But actually what we're seeing is a lot more responsibility to the brand managers, category managers, and, and uh, all the different teams on their respective brands. When you're the owner of a specific brand, uh, and here's your advantage as a small company, right? Uh, when you're a small brand, you know your audience very intimately. You know your prime prospect, the, you know, the, 1,000 people that represent the kind of audience you're after, you know them very thoroughly. You know what they do in the morning. You know what are the pain points. You know, um, you know when they snack. You know if they uh, if they like healthy or unhealthy. If the comfort indulging. If it's chocolate or uh, or if it's caramel. You know it inside out. Um, and this is the advantage of a small company. Uh, but when you're a big company and you're trying to do innovation from top down for across multiple brands, you're, you're missing out the, you know, the, the main thing of a consumer-led uh, organization. You're missing your connection and your ability to stay close to the consumers. And, and we keep saying that all the time, that if Tasteways is doing one thing really, really well, is, the, it's, is, the, uh, is that we're helping you get very close to, the, to your consumers. We're helping you reconnect with them. And we're helping you take a lot of anecdotal data into a structured, analyzed, and thorough reporting that can help you drive decision-making in the organization. So if you think about it from a more strategic perspective, we're basically helping companies build better brands and better, uh, and better marketing campaigns because they are way more accurate and a lot more specific to the target audiences. Uh, that um, they're after. It's really interesting the point that you made about um, um, about innovation centers and how innovation has to spread across the entire um, uh, not just industry but the company itself. In one of the previous podcast episodes that uh, that we've done, 
um, we were talking to Enough Geffen, who is the executive uh, chef at Unilever, and she and I asked her essentially, what does an executive chef do? And um, her answer, um, which was uh, very eloquent and very well put together, um, uh, but part of it was about the internal component of being an executive chef, which was educating internally and kind of driving that passion for food that in turn drives innovation within the, um, the company, kind of encourages. And we're seeing that in some of our other customers as well um, when we get asked to um, um, to, uh, to speak in kind of internal conferences or things like that, um, helping drive that understanding of how consumer actually behaves and, uh, and helping uh, that yeah. foster innovation. I think one of the, another interesting thing that, um, that we had on a, on a different episode was when we talked to Rachel from uh, Freshly, uh, which is owned by, by Nestle. So she knows her consumer so intimately that for example, um, if she wants to introduce a new flavor into the market, uh, we were specifically, I'm uh, based in Israel, so we were talking about Zatar. Um, and uh, so she was saying to me, Zatar, Shakshuka, these are not innovative things, but for someone in middle America, they might be. So how do I introduce that to them? How do I expose them to new flavors? So she has such intimate knowledge of them that she was able to say, okay, I'm going to take Zatar, I'm going to put it on a bagel, which is way more approachable. Um, and then I'm going to introduce it to them that way uh, as a vehicle for innovation, right? So um, yeah, I think uh, I think it's very much a cultural thing, which is as you said, easier at smaller companies and uh, and more difficult in. Uh, in Absolutely, others. I mean, um, there's there's a yeah. a very important uh, component here that uh, it's important to you know bring up and discuss, right? Um, consumers are, you know constantly looking for over you know stimulation you know visual stimulation and 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 sensory stimulation around you the flavors and the and the scents and um, fragrances and the interesting part is that a lot of it is actually uh, reflected in the digital world so when we come to to speak with organizations that all they do every day from morning to night is to you know create new food and birth Pro, uh, food and beverage products, and they're not familiar with ASMR. And if they're not familiar with mukbang or with the concept of a cheat day, and if they're not familiar with a pagan diet that is today the fastest rising diet in the US, and if they're not familiar with restaurant hopping, if they're not familiar with, uh, you know, how Netflix and chill is, is creating a whole generation of people that simply you know, come back to work after a long day and they just want food delivered to them. So they'll open their favorite, you know, food delivery app and 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 get food to the table. Uh, then they're missing the food culture. And if you're missing the food culture, you can't imagine, you can't dream, and you can't envision the future of your product and, and your category. So this is, you know, part of our responsibilities to help bridge the gap between what consumers really need and want to what, you know, companies really create. Uh, if you think about it, 85% of the innovation that is pushed to the markets fail. And I keep saying, if we took all these amazing, you know, scientists and all the, you know, smart business people and marketeers and, and, uh, and uh, product packaging experts and, if we took all these people and we actually help them find what is it that is not going to fail, that is going to meet a new 
consumer need, then would bring you know so much tikkun olam to this world and reduce so much uh, wastage and so much you know frustration and and um, and most importantly, uh, we'll miss a lot of opportunities to bring consumers what they want. And if you know we have to stop and be be honest for a moment, a big part of our consumers want is around health and wellness. So bringing this forward, it actually helps companies make faster decisions around their line of products and when do they need to get them ready for uh, uh, future ready for their consumers. So we have a great responsibility as, as an industry to make sure that companies work on products that will succeed to reduce wastage, to increase uh, uh, the, the fee to, cons- to, to consumer and consumption and get all these amazing scientists, you know, to work on things that will really change the world and improve people's health. We know that today's generation and era is not about one size fits all. It's about, you know, creating the, the, the right product for the right niche and the right segment. And as the world is a bit more global today than it was, you know, 10 years ago, we tend to think, then there is a, there is a target audience for every single product out there. Just like, find the right gap and the right space yeah. and play there instead of playing where things are already oversaturated. And, you know, a, a different company launched a product today to the retail space, meaning maybe I should start working on it today. No, right? Because by the time you start working on it and you get the product to the market, it's 12 months late. So you can't really see what's happening today. You really have to be the innovator and you have to have the data to be able to take the risk and come up uh, with, the right, uh, with the right plan. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess one of the challenges is that the cycles tend to be so long, right? The cycles tend to be anywhere between 12 to 18 months until something actually hit the shelves, um, which only stresses the importance of capitalizing on consumer needs rather than flash in the pan trends. Um, Because what we find over and over again, and we actually did a big um, study about this, uh, there's a report called the life cycle of a trend report on our website uh, that uh, explore this, uh, like how does the trend behave from inception to mainstream? Um, it uh, It sounds obvious, but it is so important to understand that consumer needs always drive trends. So a good example of this is during COVID, uh, one of the consumer needs was recreating lost experiences, right? So the things that uh, were able to capture this consumer needs were things like grazing boxes or cocktail kits, um, which are now we're seeing evolving into different trends, right? But the consumer need uh, stays the same because the world has changed, right? So the only way that, uh, that we feel that you can actually be the innovator and create the the trend yourself with your product is by understanding the emerging consumer needs that are gaining traction um, quickly now. Um, Not necessarily the ones that have the most traction, but what we like to call emerging, the ones that are gaining a lot of traction in a short amount of time across different channels. Because as we said, it's not enough to just look at social media. You also have to look at menus and recipes and how food services um, is reacting uh, to these things. Um, and another important point that you touched on is that uh, the cycles, as we said, are, are really long. Like you can't always react to the market or even innovate by bringing a new product to market. Uh, 
Because sometimes you're a company that makes sauces, or sometimes you're a company that makes donuts, and that's your product, right? Um, but the marketing that you put together around it and the messaging you put together around it, and how does your product fit within the lifestyle of your consumer, whether that is snacking during Netflix and chill or during a cheat day or uh, when they're doing a keto diet or whatever it is, that is a crucial component of how successful your product is going to be. And that is typically what I personally get most excited about when I see our customers take an existing product um, and wrap it around with new messaging that gears it more towards um, consumer lifestyles and consumer needs to see a newfound success for that product line. Um, because again, if you're a company that makes spices, you're not going to all of a sudden go and like, all right, I'm going to go out with like a, you know, a milkshake line, right? Like not necessarily, maybe. Um, but um, but the, the marketing and messaging is so absolutely crucial in this market for, for those reasons. Absolutely. So sometimes it's not about creating a new product. Sometimes it's really just making your product relevant in a new context. Uh, like we know what happened with cream cheese and keto, right? There was a big spike in sales for uh, cream cheese when keto diet started, but you know, high fat products were highly encouraged uh, to be consumed. So it really is all about you know, the context and, and, the, and the food culture that is out there. It is also a great opportunity for, for brands to be relevant. To, to their consumers or new consumers um, when things are changing. So one of the things that we saw during COVID-19 and, and we were trying to push and, and we weren't so successful is around helping brands to create more content that is relevant today. Because as you mentioned, uh, there were a lot of young parents, you know, having a, a very busy careers to manage while raising kids uh, that needed some you know entertainment uh for their kids and we haven't seen enough new recipes around you know cooking with your kids during covid which is a lost opportunity think about a brand you know how many brands could have you know celebrated the fact that they help parents connect with their kids this is such such an amazing you know social moment that you want to be part of if you're a brand and and this was a lost opportunity but there many opportunities that every day and if you're um if you keep running with your you know guesswork then you may sometimes be successful but when you're taking the right data approach to coming up with this data strategy uh, with their with the content strategies you're very uh much likely more likely to actually uh succeed and get a lot more exposure to every single um piece of content you're uh pushing out there yeah um so where, where do you typically see that fall under? Like who's the person in the organization that can drive this? Is it the brand manager or is it more specifically content marketing? Yeah, so often there's content marketing, but a lot of it is sometimes just outsourced to the agencies that are working with the brands, which is also fair enough. But as a brand, your responsibility is to guide your agency into what is it that they need to create for you. So there is a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, movement between you know the executive chefs or the chefs in the organization that are trying to push the narrative, the content marketing team. Sometimes they're internal, sometimes they're external. The brand manager, category manager, as the overall supervisors. Um, but I think there must be a lot more attention to running the ongoing content that is evergreen as well, 
uh, to uh, for your brand. So it's not only about the big marketing campaign uh, you push to you know on TV or to the radio. It's also about how do you keep yourself relevant every single day when consumers are um, are having you know new needs or new uh, uh, challenges that your brand can help them solve. So. The overall is that a lot of the content work is outsourced, but the responsibility of what should be uh, created and what is the content, you know, usually comes from the brands. And there's a lot of guesswork, and uh, and that's where we come into play. We're we're removing the guesswork from uh, your content strategy, which is so critical for your uh, for the success of you know penetrating new brands and keeping your. Um, um, consumption frequency high or increasing it, pushing it up. So the last thing I want to talk about is, um, is restaurants. So obviously restaurants have had a rough year um, and are now all over the world starting to open up uh, again in, uh, in the U.S., uh, here in Israel, also in, uh, in the U.K. Um, we know that um, almost a quarter of a million of, um, of restaurants are uh going to be changing hands, opening and closing over the the next year or even uh, as we speak right now. And having said that, um, uh, we as members of the food and beverage um, industry, we have sort of a responsibility towards this market, right? Towards restaurants, because as we said, it's our innovation platform. It's where a new business model emerge. It's where we see new trends uh, emerge. So uh, and, and I'm seeing that theme um, get back again and again with um, uh, there's uh, an amazing initiative at uh, Unilever to have fairer wages and to make sure that it's um, uh, it's better and easier and healthier for workers in kitchens. And I'm seeing that across the industry um, as well. Um, and on the other side, we still have a lot of businesses who can provide crucial services for uh, for restaurants. Um, what are your thoughts about how the industry kind of needs to rally behind restaurants right now? Um, what's your perspective on that? First, we have to remember that uh, the vast majority of restaurants in the U.S. are actually small medium businesses, um, and uh, it's anything between uh, sixty-five and seventy percent, depending on how you define a small medium business. So the first thing we have to remember is that behind every SMB, there's there are so many families and so many people that really uh, need this business to succeed. So, ten uh, percent of the uh, of the workforce in the U.S. is actually working in the food service or the restaurant industry. So, we have to be very, very conscious, and and we have to, uh, if there's anything we can do to help, uh, whether it's a business initiative or pro bono initiative, we really have to do that. This is our responsibility. Uh, what we did uh, at TasteWise is to take a big Part of our data that, uh, and we gave it for free basically on our um, different services to restaurateurs with taste alerts and uh, and helping restaurateurs make you know smarter, more uh, well-informed decisions. So that's the first thing. You know, we're talking about restaurants, but there is real people behind it, families, and and uh, it's really our responsibility to to ensure um, that they keep working and hopefully growing. Um, Restaurants, you know, are so critical. They're like a meeting point for people to connect around food, to get their, you know, to get their basic human need uh, solved, which is actually, you know, 
um, to get enough calories every day to, to get going, hopefully better calories over time, uh, which is something that we're seeing, uh, you know, as an overall trend, you know, the ingredient produce that, that is used is actually the quality is increasing. Um, so the bottom line is that restaurants are, are important. And we also must remember that they're the driver of innovation in our industry. They're the driver of innovation because, again, they're a huge innovation lab and a, and a testing lab. Every great idea for a new dish uh, can be executed the same day. And, and a new dish uh, or you know, special of the day that is successful can easily turn into a, to a permanent dish on the menu. And we're seeing it often. And that, that's a great opportunity for, uh, for us as, you know, as an industry to learn from these incredible entities that are so close to consumers every day and are able to test and tell us and indicate what is actually the need. What is working well? What's not working well? In which occasion and, and in what context? So very exciting um, world. It is also a place where you know, new concepts are, um, are coming uh, to life. I remember back in 2019, we've been talking to a lot of brands, CPG brands, and we were telling them about this new thing called virtual restaurants and how this could be, uh, represent a huge opportunity for them to sell goods, uh, and services, but also be maybe part of this uh, um, new world. And we kept saying that the that the next McDonald's is going to be a virtual or 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 chain of virtual brands. Um, and this is so exciting times, right? Because a virtual brand can help you get better food at lower cost. You know, much more ready for the for delivery. And we're seeing it today as mainstays. Uh, we're working with one of the biggest brands out there for virtual brands called Nextbyte, and um, and they're already the fastest rising uh, restaurant chain in the U.S. today. So it's definitely a space to look at. And because there's so much interaction and 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 connection to consumers, it is basically uh, a great innovation lab also for new technology uh, uh, plays like uh, Cash App by Square and so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, one of the, one of the, like we talked about changes in the industry and changes in the way that consumers uh, behave, those changes don't just affect the way that consumers interact with food and recipes and, uh, and the things that they cook, order and eat. They, it also changes the way that, uh, that restaurants actually do their business. So I think that's something really unique about um, restaurants and their relationships with their vendors, like distributors or their POS systems or uh, really any of the, the members of the ecosystem around restaurants is that I think it's out of any businesses that I've seen, you have to be so invested in the success of your customer. If a restaurant is your customer, you have to be so incredibly invested in their specific success in order to um, effectively run your business, right? If you're selling a POS system or if you're selling them tomatoes, it doesn't really matter you have to be invested in their success. So for example, and, and that is also kind of like a paradigm shift that happened, right? Because there was a very traditional way of how do you go about selling to restaurants? And all of that during COVID and during the last year uh, got turned on its head as well, right? In terms of 
How do restaurants make the choices of which channels they want to sell through? Um, we've seen restaurants close down their physical locations to band together with other brands to open up virtual restaurants. And we're seeing restaurants very quickly gain social followings in order to capitalize on their consumer needs, right? They typically will not have the budget to do extensive market research. So they will actually talk to their consumers, which is probably the best thing you can do, but you can't really do at scale, which is part of the reason why we're offering some of our services to them for free. Um, but what a lot of vendors can do is make sure that they tailor their offers to them in a very, very specific way. So for example, do you know that there's a massive uh, vegan audience in the area of this restaurant that you're selling to? Can you may help them be more successful by selling them specific products that will go in dishes that will resonate with this specific type of consumer and the things that are popular with them? Um, you really need, it sounds cheesy, but it ha you have to be a partner in their success. It's true for probably um, for any, like any salesperson wants to make their customers more successful. I just think it's so much more true and so much more um, obvious in the, in the restaurant space, which I think is really exciting. Um, so uh, it's, uh, it's been really great chatting about this stuff. I get really, uh, Alon knows that I, I come from a different industry. I came from cybersecurity um, where of course it has its moments. Uh, there are definitely interesting things there, but it's uh, it's nothing compared to this industry where it, when where it honestly feels um, like uh, we're kind of banding together around a really special moment in time. So Absolutely. I get really excited about it. Um, awesome. So we mentioned, by the way, virtual restaurants. We have an episode coming up dedicated uh, exclusively to re virtual restaurants where we're going to be talking about um, a we're talking with a virtual restaurant expert who's uh, starting a whole business around it. So definitely stay tuned for that. Alon, thank you so much for, for taking the time. Any parting words or advice for uh, listeners from the food industry before we wrap up? Yeah, I guess the most important thing maybe is that we uh, do have a free version of our platform available for anyone from the food industry. So, you know, uh, don't be scared of AI. It's very easy and, and uh, interesting to, uh, to play around and get the information you need for your internal, um, you know, uh, processes and, and decisions around new product uh, development, marketing innovation, and some of the sales activities you're running. Yeah, that's awesome. You can head to tastewise.io and sign up for uh, for free. It's free forever, so it's not like a trial. You can just go ahead and use it um, and we'll get you all the support you need. All right. Thank you so much for being here alone. And thanks, everybody, for listening. And we'll catch you on the next one. Thank you very much, Ron. Have a great day.